Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. Amen. Good morning. You're always in trouble when the drummer stays up. Um, y'all might be expecting more from me in this moment. I apologize. <laughs> Old school church, man. The drummer don't move. The keyboards don't move because you never know when a shout going to break out. Uh, <laughs> so I saw Justin stay. I was like, oh, they must got plans. <laughs> we ain't even start yet, y'all. Man, y'all, y'all, y'all are maybe uh, in a treat for today because I'm, I'm losing my voice, so I can't, I can't get as loud as I want to be. Um, but that's all right. The word is going to work. Amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We only keyed in on one of the, the profound principles in Luke chapter 11 last week as we just invited the Lord not just to teach us something, but to show us something. Uh, more specifically, show us himself. And so uh, we get to experience Luke chapter 11. I believe the Lord wants us to hear something in Luke chapter 12. And so we're going to walk through this chapter and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7 is what I'm going to read, share where we're going, and then I'll pray for us. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling one another He began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Today, I want to talk for just a moment on the topic of godly fear godly fear. Would you pray with me? Um, Father God, I just, um, God, I'm in desperate need of your help. Um, Even as my voice wavers in this moment, God, your spirit holds me fast. Your word is not without power. And so, God, I pray that you would give me your words to say in this moment that the word of God would come alive in our hearts and in our hearing, that you would change, challenge, and convict and encourage by your spirit. And above all, Father, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And God's people said, amen and amen. Godly fear. Godly fear. That may sound like a contradiction. Seems like the Bible goes out of its way to say over and over again, fear not or don't be afraid. As a matter of fact, that fear not or the command to not be afraid is the most repeated command in the Scriptures. 360 plus times from Old Testament to New Testament, you find the command, don't be afraid. So what does godly fear have to do? Oftentimes, it's not that we shouldn't be afraid. It's oftentimes we are afraid of the wrong things. There is a good and godly fear that should direct our steps. 
And there's a difference between the spirit of fear in 1 Timothy that we should not have, and yet the awareness of who God is that should provoke some fear and obedience in us. And so let's go to the Word. This concept, before I just jump in, I know this concept may seem strange. I know some of us have been battling with fear our whole lives, but fear isn't the problem, family. Once again, it's what we're afraid of. Similar to stress. Did you know that stress is neither good nor bad? Stress is just a tension somewhere in our lives. It's how we respond to it. Psychologists would describe two responses to stress. One is positive, one is negative. Positive is eustress, E-U, stress. Negative is distress. So there are positive and negative ways to respond, and some of us know this well, even though we not know the language, because don't raise your hand, I don't want you to tell on yourself, but when you were in school, how many people waited to the very last second to begin assignments? Don't, don't do it, don't do it, <laughs> Pastor Neil, come on. And, they would, and we would always say, I say we, because come on, I'm in the number, we would oftentimes say that, no, I need that pressure. I don't write papers good when I got too much time. I need, I need that deadline looming upon me, and all of a sudden, those creative juices start flowing. <laughs> y- y'all, there's hope for everybody. She's one of the most educated people in the room, and she said amen, so I feel better about that. Some of you are freaking out by that. No, that's what syllabus is for, right? To know the deadlines, to start working on it, to you know, write a draft and a second draft and have a proofread draft and all that other stuff. I turned in what I wrote the first time. I trust God with the rest, <laughs> right? Like, Lord, if I misspell these words, just God, that ain't, Lord. But some of you hear that and you hear distress. You're like, no, that's not what it's for. That would make you an- anxious to not have the work ahead of you. But for some of us, once again, that tension of a deadline, there is a response to it that's good, and there's a response to it that's negative. For some of us, the uncertainty and the unknown make some of us excited and make some of us nervous. I used to have a friend when I lived in Philadelphia for a season. I had a friend, um, Southwest Airlines used to do this thing. I don't know if they still do it now, where you could get like round trip tickets for like 49 bucks or 69 bucks. It'd be a random city in the country, like you couldn't pick where, but every weekend they would have some kind of weekend special flying to some random part of the city. Um, I had a good friend of mine that that's what he did on his days off. He would just show up to the airport with nothing and just buy the ticket to whatever was the $49 city that week. He would spend the day there hanging out, maybe spend the night, and just fly back. And some of you are like, oh, man, that's amazing. That's really cool. I'm going to try that. Other of you are freaked out right now. Like, you don't know where you're going before you get to the airport? Like, well, no, because maybe that ticket is sold out, and you checked it online, but maybe they got this other special. He would just go wherever the ticket was and spend the day in a random city in the country and then come back. The tension of not knowing can produce anxiety, distress, or excitement, you stress. So it's not stress that's good or bad, it's how we respond to it. And oftentimes in the scriptures, fear is neither good nor bad. It's what we fear that determines whether it's good or bad. So let's see what verse 4 has to say to us. I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has strength to throw, has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Luke chapter 12 is finishing a conversation that really started in Luke chapter 11, verse 37. And it says, hey, you've got some leaders, you've got some examples that aren't worth following. He was decrying the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Now, 
Before we point fingers, remember, hypocrisy just means you are two different people in two different spaces. And if we're honest, all of us got a little hypocrite inside of us, don't we? We are one way around certain groups of people, and we are another way around another group of people. Um, Growing up, going to church but not being a Christian, I remember living almost two separate lives. Having my Christian friends where I would just play along with whatever they were saying, and then have my real friends who I get to be me around. And you never let the two meet. You never let the two mix. Why? Because they don't know the same person. My church friends know this one, and my real friends know the real me. And for some of us, we, that's how we operate in certain circumstances, certain circles. We go to work and we put on the hat of the employee, employer. We put down the hat of the ambassador of the Christian. We show up to church and we put that ambassador Christian hat back on, and so we live our lives. And Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, saying the reason we do that is we fear the wrong thing. Fear is not bad in this context. No, you're just fearing the wrong person. You fear your coworkers. You fear those around you. You are so afraid of what other people think about you that you forgot what you should be most afraid of, how God sees you. Now, I don't mean fear in the traditional sense, because you see, I'm going to skip down to verse 7 so we can understand the context here. It says, indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You see, the fear that we should have for God doesn't lead to terror or doesn't lead to distress. Because although the fear is real, the focus is on God's love. Because if we're connected to him, we don't have to fear punishment. And yet, we should be afraid of him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Family, there is a real judgment coming. And everything that we see, everything that we think is important in this life will fade away. And in that moment, we will see clearly what is of most importance. So the words prescription for us today is to live now like that's so today. Live now as if the reality that we will see for eternity is our priority today. And we're going to see over and over the same method of what we should be afraid of contrasted with the great love of the one that we're called to be afraid of. In the same breath, the scripture says, fear God and don't be afraid. What are we supposed to do with that? How many people have ever uh, been on a plane before? before? Don't raise your hand, but how many people are afraid of flying? (laughs) Amen. A couple people put that out there. I appreciate your honesty. You see, there's there's a fear sometimes that overtakes us, not because we are in any danger, but because we don't know how it works. Some of us are afraid of flying because we don't understand how planes get up in the air and how they stay there. Some of us are afraid of being on the top of tall buildings because we don't understand how this building isn't falling over with a gust of wind. But for those who understand, the pilots and the engineers, for those who understand how things are made, the fear tends to go away. And so looking from a distance, we see God is a consuming fire. A man who sends those who reject him to eternal banishment in hell. But as we get to know him, as we get closer to him, we get to know his character and his nature. And yet who he is doesn't change. Our relationship to him changes. 
And so God doesn't stop being a consuming fire. He doesn't stop being the judge of all the heavens and the earth. He's just also our father. He's also the one who counts the hairs on our heads. So we don't fear him the same way because we have a relationship with him. And throughout this chapter, we're going to see this tension between love and fear play itself out. Let me say this very clearly. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you're not 100% sure, then you don't have the love, but you should have the fear. It is a right response to be afraid of God if you're on the opposite side of God's team. That's a right response. The problem isn't fear. The problem is we fear the wrong thing. He's saying, don't fear people who can't do nothing to you. Fear God. Verse 8, I say to anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Oftentimes we only hear this in the negative, that if you deny Jesus, that he's going to deny you. And that is true. But don't you hear the love also? That those who live in a way that acknowledges Jesus Christ as their father, when you get to heaven, it won't be your righteousness on the record. It'll be Jesus's. Jesus will say, he is mine. Come on in. So we both have this acknowledgement and love of being drawn close and yet this fear of who he is if we are disconnected from him. Verse 13, not only should we not fear others, but we shouldn't fear our future. Verse 13, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you. He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is going to weave together both love and fear. We fear the wrong things when he's calling us to fear the right things. So what's what's he afraid of in this one? Let's read verse 16. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your whole life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What did the man do wrong in the story? Hoarding. I struggled with this passage, I'm going to be honest with you, because it seemed very reasonable. It seemed very reasonable what the man did. He was a farmer who owned some land, and he was doing what farmers do, harvesting crops and storing crops in the growing season for the off season so that his family and his city would have food to eat, and the barns were no longer big enough. So he built bigger barns. It seemed reasonable. When you have more children, if you're able to, you move into a bigger home. You buy a bigger vehicle. Let me put it in today's terms. The FDIC, it's the insurance company that guarantees the money that's in the bank that you own right now. The FDIC guarantees, I believe it's up to $250,000. 
that says, even if that bank goes out of business, if you have that amount of money or less in that account, the government will reimburse you so that you can have confidence in the banking system. What if you have $300,000 in a bank account? Amen. I'm shouting, right? <laughs> Bless us. Hypothetical question. Say, hey. <laughs> Y'all getting excited about the wrong thing. <laughs> if you have $300,000 in a bank account, the FDIC insurance doesn't change. It's still 250. So if that bank goes out of business or defaults on its promises, you're going to get 250 for your 300. So what should you do? You should open up another bank account. That just makes sense. That's what this man did. He said, I'm only doing what makes sense. Otherwise, the, the grain would go bad. Otherwise, the food would not be enough to provide for my family in the city. Clearly, he's a business owner of some sort to have that much in storage. And so he's only doing what made sense. So what did the man do wrong? It's not going to become abundantly clear. Skip down. We're going to go back and look at verses 20 through and following, but skip down right now. Verse 30, really quickly. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need him. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old and inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not apparent in this text, but I believe this man was driven by fear. That's what greed is, by the way. It's the fear of never having enough. And so you hoard unto yourself, you save unto yourself because you really don't believe God is going to provide that which you need. And so you can't prioritize God's kingdom. You've got to prioritize your kingdom. Look at, look at the result in verse 19. Then I'll say, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, drink and enjoy yourself. That's the direction that man's life was aiming in. Comfort peace of mind through the accumulation of stuff. And this is a hard word for us today, y'all, because this is what America is built upon. This is the American dream we're talking about. This is the whole reason why 89, 90% of y'all get up and go to work every day. Most of us go to work every day so that one day we don't have to go to work because we've saved up enough where we don't have to do what somebody tells us to do every day. Is Jesus saying these things are wrong? Is that why in this parable the man's life was taken from him? Because he was a good steward of financial resources? Because he saved more than he spent? We don't have time to go through a conversation on stewardship, but remember what we're talking about is godly fear. What was the man afraid of? Not having enough. So his whole life was pointed in the direction of appeasing his conscience and bringing peace to his mind, not because he believed the promises of God, because he had enough. The problem isn't that he was afraid. The problem is he was afraid of the wrong things. 
He wasn't afraid of missing out on storing up treasures in heaven. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't motivated by being a participant in God's kingdom and God's economy. No, that was a secondary thought at best. And for many of us, that's how we live our lives, amassing unto ourselves enough so that we don't feel afraid. Well, here's the problem, y'all. There's no such thing as enough. There's just no such thing. There's no peace in the accumulation of wealth. How can I prove it to you? Remember when you were early in your career, for those who are a little bit older, I remember getting my direct deposit for $500 one time, and I thought I was rich. I was 18 years old working in a law office downtown. I got two weeks' worth of work now for $500. I was rich. Y'all couldn't tell me nothing. I moved into Spring Hill Apartments in Goose Creek, living my life. Y'all know about Spring Hill. It's for all the folks who move out first. That's like everybody's first apartments in Spring Hill. You quickly realize there's better places to live when you move out. But I was living the life, and I felt like it was enough. Fast forward a couple years, and I'm doing sales consulting um, for international uh, technology companies, and I'm charging $500 an hour to do training. It's never enough. The numbers get bigger, but so do the expenses. The direct deposit gets bigger, but so does the spending. It's never enough, family. And if you pursue enough, and many of us say in our minds that one day, if we can just get ourselves straight, then we'll take care of God's kingdom. If we can just get ourselves together, then we'll be able to really help people. Family, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Why was I so insistent in pleading to the Lord for us to plant a church within our first five years? Because the odds say if a church doesn't plant a church in the first five years, it never happens. Why? Because pastors say, well, we, you know, we just need a little bit more money. We need a little bit more staff. We need a little bit bigger building. We need a, a little bit of thing, and then we can multiply, and then we can think about God's kingdom, and then we can think about God's priorities. So you've got to step out on faith and do it before you're ready. Do it while you have other competing priorities. Why? Because I don't, I don't fear missing out on having enough more then I fear missing God and his purposes in my life. If I got to miss something, I'll miss a paycheck before I miss God's purposes in my life. Maybe we have to wait to hire some folks at the church because we, we have got to plan a church. We have got to multiply. We've got to stop making excuses for reasons why we can't. Verse 22, then he says to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and body, the more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If you then... You're not able to do even a little thing. Why worry about the rest? Um, I've shared this example before, but many of you can resonate. It's funny how free you are with money when you don't have any. When you don't got enough, you ain't worried about it. You're taking out people to lunch. You're giving extra in the offering. 
You know what I'm saying? Like when you don't have it, you ain't worried about it. But something happens when we feel like we have it. Now we got to keep it. Verse 26, y'all, is freedom for those who feel bound by this worry. You should write this down, put it on your refrigerator, commit it to memory. If you then are not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Y'all, we have no control over our lives the way we think we have control over our lives. We think it's our intellect, our stewardship, our saving that got us to the place where we are now, and it's not that. One phone call can change all of our lives today. One sudden death, illness, sickness, roof leak, flat tire. So God is saying you can't control any of it. So why worry about it? Give it all to me because I can control all things. I am controlling all things. You are here where you are today, not because you are so smooth, savvy, sophisticated, and educated. You are here because I wanted you to be here. So here's the beauty of this, y'all. If God puts you where you are, who can move you? Not your boss, not your coworkers. If God has you where you are, the only person who can move you is him. I have an opportunity every once in a while to talk about various things and speak on different panels. Um, And there's always a tension in my heart. I'll go to these large, very large, very wealthy churches and speak on different things. And they usually ask me to speak about something that they don't want to hear about. You know, church planning or race is pretty much the two things I talk about all the time. Um, And they don't really want to hear about either one of them, honestly. But nevertheless, I find myself in rooms. Now, there's a half dozen friends of mine who could write a check for Radiant Church's annual budget. And their church wouldn't change anything. They wouldn't miss out on anything. And when I walk into those rooms, I know that. So I got a choice to make. Do I say the thing that they want to hear? Do I make them feel good about the things that they're not doing? And maybe Radiant Church can be helped. Possibly. But I believe God planted this church. I believe God is sustaining this church. And I believe that no man can take away from what God is doing in this church. And so I walk into rooms free, y'all. Because I don't need you. I need God to be happy with what I say in this moment. I need God to be pleased with what I say in this moment. When you go to your own job, when you stand in front of your family, when you, do, when you go around those, how do you position yourself as a free man or woman who God has placed in this place and nobody can move you? Or do you go bowing down low because you're afraid of what people can do? Consider the birds of the field. Consider the wildfires. God cares for them. God provides for them. And so we are free to be and do what God calls us to do. Now that we got a little bit of change in our pocket, the faith hasn't changed. God's provision and promises hasn't changed. I'm free from worry. I'm free from accumulating unto myself to achieve a false sense of peace. My hand can be just as open today as it was when I had very little. Because the same God who got me there to here will get me from here to there. Fear isn't the problem. The problem is we fear the wrong thing. Verse 35, not only do we 
fear others. We fear our future. Oftentimes, and this is where Jesus starts to get real clear about who he is, we don't prioritize our lives according to his priorities for us. Be ready for service, verse 35, and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master. Let me read that again. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed be those servants the master finds alert. When he comes, truly I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and I find them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Family, we are to live lives of readiness. We are to live lives of readiness. And what I mean by that, what, uh, in the Marine Corps, when you're, when you're deployed or in, in hostile territory, uh, one of the rules, depending on the level of alert that you're in, is that you always have to have your weapon on you. It's true for any military branch, right? You always have to have your weapon on you. It always has to be within arm's distance. If you're in the shower, if you're sleeping, if you're eating, if you're walking, you always have to be ready. Why? Because you're in hostile territory and an attack could come at any moment. This is a call to readiness because Jesus could come at any moment. And what will he find us doing? Storing up for ourselves, living in fear of others, being idle with our time, talents, and treasures, or will he find us working? I'm not saying that there is no room for a break. There's no room for rest. Some of you know that I'm taking a little break myself soon. I'm talking about the consistent pattern of our lives is one of devoted following of Jesus. You see, fear of others is keeping a little bit of our identity to ourselves. We have to curate that identity so people see us the way that we want to be seen. Fear of the future is keeping our talents and treasures to ourselves. God, you get a little bit, but I need this amount for me. Readiness is about time. Idleness is about, God, I, I need a little bit of time for me. I'm not talking about rest and relaxation. I'm talking about a little bit of time where God doesn't get a say in. So many of our vacations from work are also vacations from Christian devotion. We go to beautiful places with beautiful sunsets and beautiful beaches and ain't even bring a Bible. Because I need time away from it all, God, you included. We need to take a Sabbath. How many people use that word? Don't raise your hand. And you take a little bit of Sabbath. You know, Sabbath wasn't a day of rest. It was a day of worship. It was a day where you spent all day worshiping and praying and reading and studying. It wasn't a day for you to just take a break from work. It was a day for you to remind yourselves who you work for. Be ready, family. And then Peter, being Peter, asked the question that maybe you may be thinking. Lord, Peter asked, are you telling this parable to us? Or to everyone, who is supposed to be ready? Who are the servants that should live for their master? The Lord said this, 
Who then is the faithful and sensible manager? He answers a question with a question. Who is the faithful and sensible manager? His master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time. He's restating Peter's question. Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying and is coming and starts to beat female and male servants and to eat and drink and get drunk idleness, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and an hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. Do we get the picture? There's both a warning and a promise here, just like we saw faith, uh, we saw fear and love contrasted. We see the promise and a warning together. The warning is really clear, but the promise we might have missed. The warning is if we come and God finds us unfaithful, there will be consequences. But did you hear the answer to Peter's question? Verse 43, blessed is the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. There is reward for secret faithfulness. There is a reward for secret faithfulness. There are some in here that are really clear that God wants something from and for their lives. Some of us are still figuring that out, what God wants exactly. But some of us have a clear picture of what God wants from our lives. But the problem is we think men or women can make that happen for us. And so we live to please them in public rather than to please our God and maker in private. Let me say this very clearly. If you have an aspiration for ministry, no man can open the door that God closes. And God will open that door when you are secretly faithful. Not just showing up early, which we appreciate, not just serving other people can see, but when nobody's around, and you are on your knees begging for the Lord to bring clarity to his word as you are studying, as you are seeking, as you are serving. Some of you have ambitions that don't involve ministry at all, and it's a door that only God can open. What's your faithfulness look like in secret? When it's your time, when no one's around, when no one's going to know, should God promote that person? Not the person that everyone gets to see all the time, but the person that you are when there isn't anyone to see. Can God promote that person? Can God get access and answer your prayers for that person? Because you are being found faithful or you're only faithful when people can see. You see, if the only time, family, if I get in my word is to preach a sermon, we in trouble. Because you will give, you will serve, and this church will never do anything of importance. Because God will not reward secret unfaithfulness. Oftentimes in church, that's why we have to resort to brazen marketing tactics. And I'm not saying these things are always wrong, but sometimes you've got to override what the Spirit is doing because the Spirit's not doing it as fast as you would like because you don't want to be the person that the Spirit responds to. And some of you are scheming your way into God's purposes for your life, and that is not the path. Doors keep closing, and you keep jumping through the window. 
I'm not saying it's hard. I'm not saying there's no opposition. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying your opposition isn't people who don't get it. Your opposition isn't your boss who won't promote you. Your opposition is God who's saying you're not ready. Everyone thinks you are because you're only faithful in public, but you're not ready. I was talking with the pastor one time, and I'm using a lot of pastor church examples because I'm talking about me and I want to talk about y'all. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine one day um, years ago, and uh, a bunch of pastors were, I don't know why church planners love talking about like church growth and all this other stuff, it's, it's whatever. Um, and an older pastor in the room was just kind of sitting there listening. And a couple guys at the table were just sharing how they were frustrated, man, they feel like they're stuck at a certain number, they're, they're plateauing and, and people aren't serving, all these other things. <laughs> this old pastor, man, I'm not going to say anybody's name because some of y'all know um, he looked in the room and just kind of wisely said the way uh, only an old pastor can say. And he says, brothers, God will give you the church that you deserve, not the church that you want. That may not be great theology, but it's true. It is true. Now, once again, we don't deserve anything, and so everything is grace. But God promotes some, not because he likes them more than you, not because he likes them more than me, because they were found faithful in the secret place. That's why folks who ain't got the talent got the position sometimes. Folks who ain't got the connections have the opportunity sometimes because it's God opening those doors. Family, fear isn't the problem. The problem is we fear the wrong thing. We fear other people. We fear not having enough stuff. When our lives should be revolved around having a, a tension between love and fear of the one who can open every door and shut every door. One who can destroy the body and the soul. The call today is to live your lives not getting rid of all fear, but maybe fearing the one you should fear. Living for his approval, living for his mercy, living for his kingdom. Some of you are struggling because, man, this isn't the, the gentle, soft God that we may be acquainted with. But let me make it abundantly clear in verse 49. Jesus is going to go all the way over to the edge. I came to bring fire on the earth, Jesus speaking. And how I wish it were already set ablaze, but I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. Do you think that I came here to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. From now on, five and one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I did not come to bring peace. Jesus is saying, you got to choose a side, family. You got to choose whom you are going to serve. And not choosing is choosing. We're going to sing songs around the Christmas time about how Christ brought peace on earth. And that's true in a sense. God's common grace, his restraining, providing power is living amongst us. But the purpose of that grace is to make a choice. The purpose of God's mercy isn't so that we can abuse it. The purpose of God's goodness isn't so that we can abuse it. It's to give us a moment of clarity so that we can make a choice. Who are we going to live for? Who are we going to fear? 
What are we going to prioritize? Family, if you are a believer here today, you made a choice to follow Christ one day. The Word of God is saying that we've got to make that choice every day. Every day we've got to wake up and decide to live that day in the fear and reverence of the Lord. Because he loves us, but that doesn't stop him from being who he is. The consuming fire that will separate the sheep from the goats, the the wheat from the tare, those who knew him, loved him, and obeyed him, and those who didn't. That is the division that's coming in Scripture. We'll wrap up our time reading just a few verses. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Verse 57. As you are going with your adversary to the ruler, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Then he won't drag you before the judge. The judge will hand you over to the bailiff, and the bailiff will throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last cent. This this last few verses of Scripture are about get right now while there's still time. And there's two applications there. One for the believer. Although you are saved by Christ and what God has done, no man can undo. And so I don't believe that you can lose your salvation, but you can lose your way. For the purposes of God, the priorities of God that seem so important and so clear at one point in time have faded away. And all that's important is what other people think, whether you have enough for yourself or not. So I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but I believe we can lose our way, following the wrong things, fearing the wrong people. Today is the day to get that right. But this passage is specifically talking about those who don't know Jesus Christ at all. And you've been playing the church thing, maybe. You've been around church for a while. You're here on a Sunday morning, whether in person or online, but you haven't yet made a decision to follow Jesus This passage of Scripture is saying you are being taken to the judge. One day you are going to die, and you don't know when that is, and I don't know when that is, but then it'll be too late. So the Scripture says, as you are on your way, settle with him. Get right with Jesus now. Because when you meet the judge, it's too late. When your time on this earth is over, it'll be too late to say, Lord, Lord. Don't play with eternal things. If you're a believer, it's the most important thing in your life, and, it should, and your life should reflect that. If you're an unbeliever, you are on your way to meet a God who is a terrible, consuming fire. But today, you have one more day to get right. Today, you've got one more opportunity to get right with Jesus, who's calling you to come and be made new. Let me pray for us. Father. Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com giving.